In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will start together the book of Song of Songs. Okay. Look, a lot of times when we talk about relationship with God's, with God, we always wonder how do the saints pray? What was their journey with God like? How should I talk to God? And this book here is really one of the deepest prayer and interaction between us and the Lord. And it's not only Christian consider it one of the most beautiful books, but also in the Old Testament, the Jews themselves consider it this way. It's actually in the Mishnah. It said, for in the entire world, there is nothing to equal the day in which the Song of Solomon was given to Israel. All the writings are holy, but the Song of Song is the most holy. Um, and if there has been dispute, it is only about Ecclesiastes. So we're talking about how can the human soul talk to God? How can you be free? It's not about listening to the commandments, but actually experiencing God. It's not about I committed a sin and I want to repent. It's about enjoying that journey with God that we talk about all the time. So today, we're starting the Song of Songs. Okay, it's a, a wonderful book in the Bible. Who wrote the Song of Songs? A Solomon. Okay? And I don't want to go through a lot of history, uh, but I want you guys to remember that Solomon was about 1,000 years before our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word Solomon, coming from the word Shalom, means peace. Okay? So he wrote it about a thousand years before our Lord Jesus Christ. There's actually, some of you guys who are, who, are, who are aware of this, but if you guys, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? This is like some old fragments that were found in Qumran. It's a small cave. So actually they found some of the fragments of the Song of Solomon that goes back to the third century. So a copy that was written in the third century before Christ. So this is a very ancient very ancient book. Why, why Solomon? Okay, we'll talk a little bit about Solomon because that really kind of relates to us. Who's Solomon? Solomon is somebody who was raised in the church. His father is David the prophet. He taught him well. He was raised in the house well. Remember, David had children before Solomon, but David did not good, do a good job raising his early children. And at the end of his life, when David was a king, if you guys remember, he committed a sin with Bathsheba and his first son died. Solomon is the second son of Bathsheba. So David actually took care of him, raised him well, taught him well. He was raised in the church. And actually Solomon became a king while David was alive. There's a bit of a dispute about Solomon. So Solomon's mom went to David, she told him you promised him to be a king, so he made him a king. Now. What happened in the life of Solomon? When Solomon started his life with God, he was a wonderful king. When God came and told him, Solomon, ask anything. He told him, I don't know how to go in and come out. Give me wisdom so I could judge between your people. So Solomon is considered to be the wisest, the wisest man alive, obviously, after our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not Harvard professors. Solomon was the wisest man alive. Now what happened with Solomon? Solomon actually saw God twice. 
Like, you know, when some people say, I saw miracles, he saw two miracles. He was the night when he asked for wisdom and God responded. And then the night when he ordained the temple and there was a big cloud and he heard the voice of God. So Solomon is somebody who was raised in the church by David, by his father. He was going to church all the time. He saw miracles. He's a king. Everything is looking good for him. But then what happened? He started getting into bad relationships. He started marrying some people from outside Israel. Like for example, he married the daughter of Pharaoh, thinking that this is a good political move. And slowly, 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 the same man who saw a miracle was the same man that ended up worshiping idols. He worshipped the idols of the woman that he married. That's a big problem. You're talking about the wisest man, the richest king. By the way, in the time of Solomon, the kingdom was at its peak. To the point, imagine if we have this right now. People used to work one month and take three months off. See how rich they were at that time? Imagine if this is life in America. You work one month and take three months off. They were very rich. At his time, it was the most artistic time. He was so creative, arts everywhere, architecture everywhere. Just the most beautiful time in Israel. God had given him so much. But then he ended up straying away from all of this because of lusting and bad relationships. He actually ended up marrying between wives and concubines almost a thousand women. And they drifted him away from God. And then at the end of his life, a lot of the fathers say he repented and he came back to God. So we're talking about somebody who is very relevant to us because we're all fed by the church, raised in the church. And sometimes we drift away and then hopefully all of us come back to God from a different understanding. When we look at the book of Song of Songs, we'll look at it as the relationship between the human soul and God. And you might say, how did the people in the Old Testament look at it? Because this is an Old Testament book. A lot of the rabbis looked at it as the history of Israel and God. God's love with Israel. Okay? And there is a very beautiful prophecy that God gave David, the prophet. It's actually in the second Samuel chapter 7. He told him, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest in your, with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. So Solomon's relationship with God is the same as Israel's relationship with God. God said, I have a covenant with Israel. If Israel stays away, I will punish it, but I will always keep some remnant. Something will come back to me. 
Even, by the way, in Romans, one of the mysteries that St. Paul talks about is the return of Israel to God. So this is how people in the Old Testament looked at the book of Psalms. How do people in the New Testament look at it? There is four different ways of looking at the book of Song of Songs, and not all of them are good ways. But I'll give you some to help us. The first one is allegory, which we hear this word a lot. What is allegory? Allegory is everything has a symbolism. And it's basically this story just is a symbolic story. Okay? And the method of allegory is actually something that's very ancient. It was actually developed earlier on by, by Christians and Jews. Philo uh, of uh, Alexandria in the year of 20 BC, Origen used the same thing. There's also Jewish Aristobulus in Egypt who used it in 160 uh, BC. But we cannot look at the book as fully allegory because the book also talks about real people in real places. Like, for example, the book talks about a place called Ain Gadi or Ain Gadi, Sharon, Lebanon, Tazra. All these places are real places, okay? So it's not allegory like we use this word. There's a better word than allegory that we use in the church. It's called typology. I'm sorry to be a bit technical, but this will help us. What is typology? The word type, you guys know the word type, comes from the Greek word uh, typos, which means patterns. Or you hear anti-type is corresponding to something that has gone before. So basically, when we look at typology, it's basically affirming the historical places and location that does not mean, but also allows for us to understand this in a spiritual way. And the first, one of the first ways in the New Testament, for example, that we use typology, you see it in Romans 5.18. This is a very clear example. It says, Adam, the head of the human race, is a type, typology, of the one who was to come, Christ the head of a redeemed humanity. So St. Paul talks about, uh, talks about Adam as a type of Christ. Okay? So why is that different than allegory? Adam is not allegory. He's not like a symbol. He was actually a real person that lived, but he's a type of Christ. Do you guys, is this clear? The difference between allegory and typology? Okay? Because that's a, an important question. Some people look at the Song of Songs as drama. Origen actually used this. And why is there a drama? Because you will see actually the Song of Songs, there's four different groups of people are singing. This is a song, right? It's like a psalm. Psalm is sing. So it's almost like when you have a choir singing and one person sings something and another person responds. So this Song of Songs, he says it's more like a drama. There's four different groups of people who are talking and singing and responding. And they're all very, very important for us. A lot, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, fathers in the church do not like to use the word drama specifically because the audience in the book are participating. So it's almost like in the liturgy. When we are in the liturgy, we are actually participating. It's like a ritual. But in in the, in the drama, people are sitting and watching. I'm sorry. I'm just giving you how people interpret the book, so it helps us to understand where are the right ways. The fourth, so the first way was allegory. The second one is typology. The third one is drama. The fourth one is simply, they call it natural. Basically, some people said, this is just a love between two people. And God wants to show that love and marriage has no problem. And it's something that's sacred and something that's beautiful. And we should honor it. This interpretation 
is actually very weak because as we go through the song you will see it's impossible to think of this as love between two people I'll give you a small example until we reach to it for example the, the soul talks about how other women other versions love her beloved how would a two people love each other we'll talk about another woman that loves her beloved so this is really not a, not a way not the best way so when we look at the song of songs it is the expression of love between us and God Solomon is the perfect person to talk about this because he spoke he had a wonderful mysterious relationship with God he saw heaven he heard the voice of God and now we're going to see how different people interpreted we said in our church and most churches they, they, they interpret it as type, typology a little bit of drama is acceptable but mainly typology okay now this song by the way we call it poetry or song like psalms are a song proverbs is a song most of job is a song isaiah is a song jeremiah is a song most of the minor prophets are a song so actually people when you hear it in hebrew and it rhymes and it's beautiful it's so enjoyable and actually if you go on youtube and hear some of the psalms in hebrew being sung it's really beautiful so what is this saying saying this is not a song this is a psalm of songs this is the most beautiful song that's ever sang now when we look at the before we go into the book itself when we look at the at the book itself i want to divide the book into four different parts okay so if you're taking notes this is time when you take notes uh, actually five because the first verse chapter first verse chapter one verse one is simply title and who's the author so that's outside now from verse one from chapter one verse two to chapter two verses seven i want to title it initial grace you know when you start your relationship with god when i say you start relationship with god i don't mean sunday school i mean when you start enjoying the presence of god experiencing him truly for yourself this period is called initial grace okay and then from chapter 2 verse 8 to chapter 3 verses 5 we call it the spiritual struggle the human soul is found and lost and found that's the whole struggle and then from chapter 5 verse 6 to chapter five, uh, sorry chapter 3 verses 6 to chapter 5 verses 1 it's dedicating our life to God it's marriage between me and God and after we marry God, what happens? From chapter 5, verse 2 to 8, verses 4, there's also different types of struggle. Again, we're lost and found. And then at the very end, chapter 8, verse 5 to 14, is commitment to God. This is the human relationship with God. You enjoy the initial grace of God, and then you struggle, lost and found, lost and found. And then you marry yourself to God and say, no way, I'm going to be married to God. And then you're lost and found again. And then finally, you commit your relationship with God. Okay? This is basically the, the, the spiritual life in its essence. So right now, we're going to talk about the song. The, we're going to start uh, the book, Song of Songs. The f chapter, verse 1 says, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. I was telling you earlier that construct of song of songs this is something to show something unmatched like the holy of holies this in genesis talks about the servant of servants 
That means this is the greatest psalm that we will sing, the greatest song we will sing. And Gregory of Nessa says, another Solomon, so Solomon, we said, means peace, so the king of peace. Another Solomon is signified here, one who is also descended from the seed of David according to the flesh, one whose name means peace, the true king of Israel, and the builder of God's temple. This other Solomon comprehend the knowledge of all things. His wisdom is infinite, and his very essence is wisdom, truth, as well as very exalted divine name and thought. Christ used Solomon as an instrument and speaks to us through his voice, first in Proverbs, then in Ecclesiastes. After these two books, his speaking philosophy sets forth in the Song of Songs and shows us the ascent to perfection in an worldly fashion. It is not an accent, I think, that the book is ascribed to Solomon. This serves an indication to the reader to expect something great and divine. So God used Solomon specifically because he, his name means peace. He was the wisest among all human. He was a king of Israel. And he was the most artistic and creative. God used him to express his love to us. As I was telling you earlier, obviously this song has four group of people who are the four. It's the human soul or the woman who's speaking, which us. Then the lover, God himself. There's a group called the daughter of Jerusalem. And we'll talk more about them who are the daughters of Jerusalem. And there's a fourth group called the guards of the city. So if you think about the song being sung in a church or in a synagogue or in the temple, you have four choirs. Each, each one plays a, a role. A role. This song, when we're talking about it, we're talking about a different type of song. Why? When we talk about what are the songs that God sang to us, God loves humanity, so he sings to us. A lot of the fathers will say that the law and the commandments are the song that God sang for us. But this song is special because it's not just the commandments. It's the intimacy between the human being and God. There's actually one person who's sharing this with me earlier. He told me, he was reading something, he said that God is love. And if God is love, it means that I am the beloved. God's nature is love. He must love. And if God must love, there is somebody that he loves. And I am the subject of, a, of his love. This is a stage when the human soul no longer wants to hear sermons. It wants to experience the love of God firsthand. So right now, we'll start the dialogue that happens when we experience the initial grace of God. Look at the first verse. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. This is a, a beautiful invitation to God. What is this happening? The human soul is full of desires. I want an intimacy, an intimate relationship with God. This human soul is inviting God to come. I've heard about you so much. I've heard many sermons. I don't want to just stand far. I want a kiss, okay? And what is, what is the idea of a kiss? 
The kiss was a simple symbol of peace. When two people in the Old Testament are fighting or arguing, they get a kiss. Kiss was a symbol of peace. That's why in the church we say kiss one another. That's just a sign of us having peace with one another. Kiss also is a sign of forgiveness. And that's very important for us. If you guys remember in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 20. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But when the father was still far away, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What is that kiss? It's the kiss of forgiveness. When I enjoy the grace of God, the initial grace of God, it starts with me desiring God and immediately my sins are revealed. And immediately I feel forgiven all at once. All at once. You're crying out of joy and also out of repentance. And it says the kiss of his mouth. You guys know the kings in the old days would allow people to kiss their ring, their hands, or sometimes even their garments. And it would be considered a great honor for somebody to kiss the garment or the hands of a king. You know, like, for example, right now you see people taking a picture, kissing the hands of Pope Shenouda or Pope Tawadros and put it on their social media. You know, I met the Pope, I took a picture of him. This was a great honor. Now, what is, this, what is she saying? She's saying, God did not honor me. He gave me an intimate relationship. A kiss of love and equality and intimacy. Why is she saying the kiss of the mouth? Because what came out of the mouth of God? The commandments of God. Look in Job 23, 12, it says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So, I'm telling God, God, I want the kiss of forgiveness. I want to hear your commandment so close. I don't want to hear it from far. I don't want to hear it from far. Origen says, Thus it is rightly honored above all songs, above all songs, for other songs which the law and the prophet sang seemed to be sung to the bride when she was still a child and had not yet entered the passageway of adulthood. But this song seemed to be sung to a woman who is now grown and very strong and who is now capable of manly strength and perfect mystery. This is a bond. People grow in Sunday school, grow in the church. They hear, they memorize, they don't want to wake up early to come to church. They do all these things. But at some point, at some point, they experience the love of God. And it seems in this passage here, when she said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his love, that she's making herself equal with God. Actually, I was reading to one of the Western saints and she was saying, the gap between me and God is so big, so big. 
but he filled it with love. That I no longer feel this gap, I see him face to face. There's an understanding and confidence of the God I'm talking to for the first time in my life when I taste his grace. If you notice, the human soul here does not mention his name. She says, let him. And this is very common in the, in the Old Testament when we talk about God. You see this in Psalm 73. It says, whom I have in heaven but you, and there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. This also shows that this is not meant to be between two people. Same thing with Mary Magdalene. When she, after resurrection, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Everyone knows what you mean. All those who've tasted the initial grace of God will understand what you mean when you say, I'm in love with him. And then she says, for your love is better than wine. What's, what's the whole thing about wine? A couple of things. In the Old Testament, there's an expression that says, wine makes the heavy heart glad. You see this in Psalm 31, 6. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are better of heart. So when somebody is sad or having a bad day or whatever it is, Wine was a symbol of making people joyful. What is she saying? She's saying that the most exciting thing that people use to make them happy on this earth comes nothing to, for, to compare to your love. God, all human relations, the guy I'm with, the girl I'm with, my boss who respects me so much and sees so much potential in me, all my dreams, all the fun places I've gone to, everything, your love is much better than them. Much better than wine. And obviously in the New Testament, the Lord used wine as a pledge of his love to us in the Last Supper and also in the second, in, in the kingdom of heaven when he says, but I, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why I'm saying that this is an initial grace? Look at this verse carefully. What does it say? It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So she's almost starting to pray. She's calling Maybe the daughter of Jerusalem, we'll see later. Maybe she's talking to people around there. And all of a sudden says, for your love is better than wine. So once she started to pray, she felt the presence of God. He was there right next to her. That's why this is a period that I like to characterize as the initial love, the initial grace. Can I and you pray until God Kisses with the kisses of forgiveness. I miss the feeling when I felt that all my past is gone. Can I ask God to inflame me with the love for his commandments? And not only the commandments I read in the scripture, but the commandments that he guides me every day to. I want to hear your voice 
so close. Kiss me with the kisses of forgiveness. I want to be intimate with you. It says, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. What is the fragrance of your ointments? If you guys remember in the Old Testament, when you ordain a priest, you will anoint him. When you ordain a king, you'll anoint him. A prophet, you'll anoint him. So nothing is made sacred or holy except by anointing. So she's telling him the smell of your ointments. What are the smells of his ointments? Is the grace that are surrounding the person. And if you see this, you see this in Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8. It says, you love, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So there's an oil of gladness that surrounds you. You know, when you meet somebody who is in love with God, there is so much peace around them, joy around them. There's the story of, for example, Agonius Antoni. When people used to simply sit next to him just to get a blessing because he was, he was a silent monk. He would not speak. There is a sense when I'm sitting in the presence of God as if like nothing else matters. There's a sense of safety and amazement and a sense of like everything in the world is so small. And a sense of awe, but still a sense of all of love surrounding me. So she's telling him, when I'm in your presence, I feel all these things. So you know, like when two people, for example, fall in love with each other, they talk about each other. Oh, she's so beautiful. She's so nice. I've never seen anybody like her. And so on. This is what the human soul is saying. She says, thy name, when she's talking about the name of God, it's the character and the office of God, whether he's acting as a prophet or as a priest or as a king. It says, poured out. When did the office of God poured out for us? Salvation. It shows when Jesus broke himself for us. This is, you see this in Roman 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So she's telling him, there's a grace that I have tasted and I have seen because you have poured out yourself to me. Can you imagine? God is poured out for you. All his love all his grace, all what he can offer is right there next to you, for you and for me. That's why we, one of the wisdom saints was saying that God loves each one of us in a very unique way and pours himself out to each one of us in a very unique way. Just like all of us love each other in a different way. We don't love all people the same exact way. There's a different connection and conversations and way of bonding with each person. God does the same with us. And then she tells him, 
Therefore, the virgins love you. Of course, this is, that's why I'm telling you this cannot be between a man and a woman. She's talking about the human soul and God because who would, who would be like, oh, all the ladies love you and she's okay with that. doesn't work. Who are the virgins? So the virgins are those who are followers of Christ. And you will see this in Revelation, for example, 14, 4. It says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were the redeemed from among men, being first fruit to God, to the Lamb. She's telling him, all those who follow you love you. So, a sign of us as a follower of Christ, that we love him. Not that I come to church, not that I socialize, not that I serve, not that I do this, not a sign of me as a follower of Christ. The sign is I love him. I love him. That's the sign that I am a virgin. Then what she tells him, she tells him, draw me after you, let us run. You know, like when you're praying and as if like your soul is flying and you don't feel the time and you're sitting and talking and like, how did the time fly? When you tell, when she's telling God, draw me after you, I mean, she has so, that, so much desire, but she feels there is a step I cannot cross. I need you to pull me towards you. There's an acknowledgement of an ability to fully fly to God unless He allows me. And St. Augustine talks about, let us run. He said, the singer sings a sort, sort of a spiritual rapture experienced by holy souls, contemplating the marriage relationship between Christ the King and His Queen, City the Church. But it is a rapture veiled in allegory to make us yearn for it more passionately and rejoice in the unveiling as the bridegroom comes into view. The bridegroom to whom the cantle sing, the righteous love you. And the heart aching bride replies, there is love in your delight. So what St. Augustine is saying, he says when she's saying, let us run, she's talking about like a, a mysterious, mysterious rapture. Like when some of the saints talk about how their souls are taken to heaven or engraved in the love of God. She's talking about something special. You know, when you look at this and you compare, we compare our own prayers to this prayer. I stand before God. God, please forgive me. God, please guide me. God, please help me. How many times do I tell him, let us run. Draw me near to you. Let us go together in a bond of love. Now, the woman continues and says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Be careful. She's saying, God brought me into his chambers. Not one chamber, but chambers, many rooms. God has shown me his secrets, all the hidden purposes and the concealed mysteries. God has shown that to me. And you see this clearly in the book of Daniel with Abraham, with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with all the people that followed God, God showed them His intimate secrets. God shows them the joy of the heavenly homeland, which we can only see it by faith. 
That's why Gregory the Great said, the church of God is like a house of certain king. It has gate, it has a staircase, it has a dining room, it has a bedroom. Everyone within the church has faith and has already entered the gate to the house. For just as the gate opens the way to the rest of the house, so thus faith provides entrance to the rest of the virtue. So what makes me not able to enter the chambers of God is my doubt, is my lack of faith. Not my sin, not my inability, not my weakness, not my status. It is my lack of faith. When I pray, do I have the faith that shakes mountains, the faith that trusts in the Lord? Now, as I was telling you, this song here is about four groups talking. So the soul spoke. Now, in this verse, verse 4, the daughters of Jerusalem will speak. We'll see who are the daughters of Jerusalem. She said, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. So here, it seems like as the human soul started getting so close to God, it entered into the council of the saints. Someone saw the family of God. The daughter of Jerusalem are the followers of God. Someone started seeing all those who love God. Start seeing the people in the church in a different light. A lot of times in our period of initial grace, people see those in the church in a very, very pure way. People see people in the church in a very pure way. Like when people enjoy the initial grace, they can't be like, I want everybody so awesome, everybody so great. How do people love God so much? I feel so far away from God. I feel this, I feel that. Why? Because they can see through the eyes of God. When I am looking at people in a judgmental way, I have lost that sight. And she said, we will remember your love more than wine. You know, that I was reading something I like. There is mysteries of God's mystery that heaven, God's mercy, that heaven itself is astonished at. When heaven sees how much God is merciful toward us and loves us and does all these things for us, heaven itself is astonished. God, are you really doing this? Do you really love them that much? That's amazing. That's amazing. Each one of us, when they come to communion, we will not understand this until we enter the kingdom of heaven. And then she responds, this is a human soul, says, rightly do they all, do they love you? See, that's why I'm telling you this is not a love between one person. It's a love of the human soul with God. And she sees other souls loving God. And that does not make the soul thinks that she's in competition with other saints. She says, lightly, rightly, they all love you. When she saw the family of God, she saw that they all love God. When she saw the secrets of God, she saw how each one of his children 
enjoying him in a different way. But look what's her response. This is the response, maybe the last verse for today. She says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. When we go through these verses, you might say, man, this, like, this is somebody who's so close to God, so intimate. Who am I to experience this? This is exactly what that soul is saying. She says, when I entered the grace and I saw all the saints and all the wonderful people of the church, I realized that I am dark, but I am lovely. What does that mean? I'm dark, but my, because of my own sin, because of my unworthiness. But I am beautiful by faith. I'm beautiful because of the love of God toward me. The tents of Qadar, by the way, were tents that the Arabs used to make out of goats. And if you guys see the difference between goats and sheep, the goats are usually made of their skin or dark, either dark brown or dark black. So these tents are always looking black or brown. So she's telling them, I am like the tents of Qadar, dark, but lovely. I have my two eyes. One eye sees my unworthiness and one eye see the love of God. And she tells him, I'm like the curtain of Solomon. So you guys know, obviously, between the holy and the holies of holies, there was a curtain that does not allow people to see what's inside. So she's saying that because of my darkness, I was not allowed to see what's inside. I was not allowed you to see, see what's inside. Gregory of Nessa says, The bride further speaks to her followers of an amazing fact about herself in order that we might learn from the bridegroom's immense love for humankind, who added beauty to the beloved through such love. Do not marvel, she says, that righteousness has loved me. Although I have become dark through sin and have dwelt in the gloom by my deeds, the bridegroom made me beautiful through his love. Having exchanged his own beauty for my disgrace after taking the filth of my sin upon himself he allowed me to share his own purity and filled me with his beauty he who first made me lovely from my own repulsiveness has showed his love for me it is really it's so beautiful when I see that the love and the beauty in me is a reflection of what God has given me it's not something I initiate. It's not something I do. It's nothing, nothing I start or I give. It is a reflection of what I have received. It is a reflection of what I have received. Let's take just one more verse. It says, so she feels unworthy and she feels dark, but look what she said. She says, do not look upon me because I'm dark. Don't look at my sins. Don't look at my weaknesses. Because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyards I have not kept. What is this human soul saying? She's saying, I have always been a bad child. I have not kept my own vineyard. I have been almost, in a plain language, a flirt. I left my body, my life, myself, and looked after other people. 
I have made my fair share of mistakes. I've been so busy from looking after my own salvation, my own soul. I have become dark by the sun. You guys know Israel, the sun, reference our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means that I have listened to the commandments multiple times. And I have rejected the voice of God multiple times. When we hear the word of God, the Bible says the word of God does not come back empty. So if it does not soften your heart, it will harden your heart. She said, you know, I've done it all. I was busy. I ran after other people. I neglected my life. I ignored the commandments. Everything. And she says what? She says, my mother's sons were angry with me. It's an interesting expression. She did not say my own people. She did not say my father's house. She is my mother's sons. What does that mean? Remember, the Bible talks about when you marry somebody, you leave your family behind. So she's already talking from the point of view that she have already had a marriage with God. But also, if you guys remember in John 8, 41 to 44, because this is a really important passage. Our Lord Jesus Christ talked to the leaders of the Jews. What did he say? He says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor I have come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. So there, who are the people that led her astray? Those, the leaders of the Jews, were people who go to the synagogue, read the Bible, serve, but led her astray because they were not truly loving God. Sometimes the people that lead us astray are those who are in the same church. Who have kept me very busy not looking after my own uh, vineyard. That's why it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an implied understanding here that the soul committed itself to God. And she looked after her own vineyard. That's why St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, By I discipline my body and bring it into subject, subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So hopefully today as we stand and pray, we can incorporate some of this beautiful song in our prayers. Lord, kiss me with the, with the kisses of forgiveness. Kiss me with the words of your commandments. Let me run after you. Let me draw near to you. Let us, let us get closer. Let me see everyone with special grace that you have given them. And next week we'll start hearing the voice of God for the first time talking to the human soul. And glory be to God forever and ever.